a discussion about mental health challenges that many evacuees from Afghanistan have faced and continue to endure. Good morning, early birds. I'm Jonathan Lairfeld, and this is the Early Bird Brief, produced by Defense News and Military Times. Today, I talked with Military Times editorial fellow Jaime Morcarillo about the various mental health challenges refugees have tackled in the wake of traumatic events that have occurred in Afghanistan. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the premise of your story and how it came about? Why did you feel like it was an important story to tell? A big focus of government policy and media coverage in the U.S., uh, you know, especially after the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, was how veterans, you know, adjust to life after combat, how they piece together routines and civilian lifestyles, how they rebuild personal and professional relationships, and especially how they navigate some of the you know, physical and psychological difficulties they may have endured while serving. And I found that there was very little out there examining how Afghan veterans have reckoned with these challenges, despite the fact that tens of thousands of Afghan soldiers, interpreters, and other personnel were essential to supporting America's longest war. So I kind of just set out to understand how this community, veterans, um, particularly those who've resettled in the U.S., have been kind of dealing with the mental impacts of the war and, you know, trying to figure out what system, if any, kind of existed to support them. So can you give us listeners a quick recap for those less familiar of the events that took place in Kabul in August 2021? That sort of also helps lead up to your story? Yeah, of course. I mean, in April of that year, President Biden had announced that the U.S. would be withdrawing all of its forces from Afghanistan by September 11th, building on years of pledges and plans from other administrations to kind of scale down the American military presence there. And over the course of that summer, the Taliban, which had you know, gradually been amassing strength, just completely blitzed Afghan government forces across the country, retaking Swastika territory and ultimately seizing Kabul on August 15th. And that fall of Kabul, the fall of Kabul triggered this sort of frenzied evacuation of U.S. personnel and tens of thousands of Afghan allies uh, and civilians who feared for their lives. And I'm sure, you know, many people can recall like the images and reports from that time. It was just like a spectacle of despair and desperation. And ultimately, you know, the final American troops left Afghan soil on August 30th. And by that point, over the span of around two weeks, I think around like 120,000 people had been airlifted out of the country. And, and you know, among those 120,000 were roughly 80,000 Afghans who were eventually relocated to the U.S. So you sort of just touched on this, but in the wake of the traumatic events that unfolded before and during and after the American exit from Afghanistan, how would you describe the mental health challenges that many of the Afghan refugees faced? And also, what are some of the main factors from your reporting that you've seen contributed to that? It's a pretty hard problem to characterize just because its scale and depth is just kind of so daunting. Um, and there are a lot of intersecting difficulties that kind of feed off one another. There was already quite a serious mental health crisis in Afghanistan before the Taliban took over. Chronic violence combined with a very meager healthcare system had produced unusually high incidence rates of PTSD, anxiety, 
um, depression among the population at large. A 2018 study estimated that around 85% of Afghans witnessed or experienced at least one traumatic event in their lifetimes. Um, that same study found that an average Afghan saw or suffered from an average of four. You know, as a result, it's not very surprising that one in every two Afghans are estimated to have suffered from psychological distress. And all this was before the evacuation, which was a, an exceptionally kind of just traumatic and chaotic experience. Um, and then, of course, becoming a refugee in those kind of frenzied and dangerous circumstances um, exacerbates all of these problems. And, you know, without adequate support, it can really kind of become just like a quagmire of stressors. Can you walk us through maybe some of the pressures in the U.S. from refugee life for these Afghans and how that relationship relates back to, in many ways, the conflict there and being a part of combat, all of those things? Many, and of course, at a fundamental level, many, almost all Afghan evacuees had to endure, you know, kind of just like the soul-splitting pain of being forced to abandon your home. Uh, many had to leave very close family members behind, parents or kids or siblings. And then, of course, once you're here, there's a whole roster of difficulties you have to overcome. Um, you have to find work. You have to pay for food and rent. You have to learn a new language, adapt to a new culture, and so on. And on top of all of that, a lot of evacuees are struggling with legal issues, dealing with their immigration status. Most of the Again, roughly 80,000 that arrived here that summer and early fall in 2021 um, were granted something called humanitarian parole, which is this very tenuous legal permission to reside and work in the U.S. and access some public services. For most, that status expires after two years. There are opportunities to reapply, but that process is very convoluted from, according to activists and um, Afghans that I've spoken to, and thousands have yet to hear back about their status. And, you know, those who have applied for more kind of stable immigration conditions like the special immigrant visa or asylum are just stuck in backlogs. So there's a lot of uncertainty kind of looming over the community in that regard. Um, and then, of course, you add the traumas of combat on top of all of this, and you're in an incredibly fragile, you know, mental state. And from my conversations with resettlement groups, clinicians, Afghan evacuees themselves, I found that there are just a lot of structural and cultural obstacles standing between, you know, an Afghan evacuee dealing with these kinds of things and, you know, effective care. For starters, there's already a shortage of therapists and mental health professionals in the U.S. An even smaller sliver of that already limited pool, you know, can speak an Afghan language like Dari or Pashto. Um, or understand like Afghan cultural taboos. And for the Afghan community, there's also a very deep stigma about discussing psychological issues. Afghans I spoke to told me that, you know, your caste is crazy or unstable if you ever kind of waited those conversations. Um, so that precludes a lot of people from opening up um, about what they're going through. And advocates and clinicians have also told me that there's a lack of communal understanding about mental wellness, you know, what it is and why it's important to treat. So all of those factors together make for a pretty dire situation. 
I know you already shared that you've spoken with a number of Afghan evacuees. I think it's important for listeners to know, though, we're not just sharing stories about nameless, faceless figures. There are individuals like Hasib Sutri, who you spoke with. Can you share with us a little bit more about his story and how he got involved in all of this and what his role and relationship has been like with U.S. forces? Yeah, of course. So, I mean, I, th- I think you phrased it really well. Um, I feel like any piece like this kind of needs like a, a human element, a human story to kind of anchor it and sort of give it a kind of depth and allow the rich kind of build sympathy. I met Hasib through a contact with my Edward Settlement Agency. Um, like you said, uh, I felt like the piece needed some human stories. Um, so I was trying to get in touch with Afghans who'd served to kind of have a personal narrative to anchor it. And Hasib has a really remarkable story. Uh, he was born in Kabul. Um, he's, not, he's not exactly sure when because uh, he doesn't have a birth certificate. But his dad was a truck driver in the city. And he managed to get, and despite that, he managed to get quite a solid education to learn English. And he was around 15 when the U.S. invaded in 2001 after the 9-11 attacks. And, you know, because he needed money and he spoke comparatively good English, he decided to work for the U.S. government. And so he, two years after the invasion, 2003, he signed up as an interpreter for the Department of Defense. Um, And then in 2008, around 2008, he joined uh, the security detail at the American Embassy in Kabul. And Hasib and I had lots of really long, intimate conversations about his life and his sort of his mental and emotional health. And it was really, you know, to me at least surprisingly forthright, given the, given the stigmas involved. He was very willing to open up about things that he really speaks to anyone about and with a kind of a level of uh, emotional intelligence that was really quite aware for anyone. And I think... In many ways, his story epitomizes the struggles endured by other Afghan veterans and the Afghan community at large. He was frequently exposed to very grim violence through his work. Uh, The evacuation was especially difficult for him. Um, He arrived here with his wife and three kids in late August. I think they left Afghanistan on August 17th, two days after the Taliban took over. In that two-day period, he fled his home and had to hide because he was a target um, because of his past work. And he had to leave behind his parents and his sisters, um, whom he calls every day and worries about constantly. For months after he arrived, he couldn't work. Um, So he and his family survived on food stamps and donations and rental assistance, like many other Afghans who evacuated here. And yet, despite all these difficulties, um, or maybe, you know, in large part because of them, he had yet to kind of speak to a mental health professional. Um, Part because of the stigma, but largely, he said, because, you know, he doesn't want another thing to worry about in addition to all the other pressures he's facing in life. And of course, you know, I think it's worth noting that, you know, of course, Hasib and his family have been through a lot, but they have in some ways been unusually lucky. Hasib had very strong connections with people in the U.S. government who were able to offer a very robust network of support when he arrived here. He was also able to get through the immigration backlog and he he now has a green card, which is really wonderful for him and his family and offers a lot of stability. 
he's been able to hold down a steady and just gratifying job, which are all kind of conditions that are quite rare for the evacuee community at large. So to wrap things up, what is being done to assist this community here in the U.S.? And also why, based on your reporting, is it important to address that trauma the Afghan evacuees have endured? Yeah, no, both, both really important questions. Um, so the experts I spoke to and the research I've read described kind of really bleak consequences for leaving this trauma unaddressed. Um, you know, for the individual, leaving these mental wounds to fester can affect your ability to work, can affect your ability to meet basic needs, can affect your ability to care for your family. And at a community level, these kinds of symptoms can really derail integration efforts and set back the progression of a community um, for generations. Resettlement groups and government agencies are you know, quite conscious of this danger. In recent months, they've been trying to assemble and advertise a patchwork of mental health treatment options for Afghan evacuees. Um, lots of resettlement groups are now you know, using government and private grants to hire their own clinicians that speak Afghan languages and understand Afghan cultural nuances um, to work directly with some of their clients and offer therapy and things like that. Um, others have established more informal kind of wellness groups where people can come and discuss their, you know, the, the adjustments they're facing, how, you know, and just uh, other things that may be troubling them. Um, and they're also running these, you know, pretty robust kind of education campaigns to destigmatize treatment um, and to kind of clarify where folks can go to find help if they want it. And of course, you know, they're trying to continue to resolve those, you know, lingering financial and legal uncertainties that are generating and compounding a lot of the stress. Um, but everyone I've spoken to has been quite clear that there's quite a lot more work to be done in this, in this area. That's it for us this morning. To get more of the top stories and breaking news, go to defensenews.com slash EVB to subscribe to the Early Bird Brief newsletter. Please give us a like, rating, and a comment wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to follow us on social media at defense underscore news and at military times. The Early Bird Brief is hosted by me, Jonathan Lairfeld, and produced by Zimone Z. Perez. If you enjoyed our conversation today, be sure to check out Jaime's work at militarytimes.com. Our editor-in-chief is Mike Gruss. Have a great day.